Hello, everybody. What you're about to hear started as a one-part episode, but quickly turned into two. My conversation with Simon Tam from The Slants about being doxxed, cancel culture, and online threats was too insightful to abide by the clock. Together, we discuss his struggles with online harassment, the vital importance of free speech, as well as suggestions for fighting back against cancel culture. Speak your mind, America. Audio engineers, cue the music. Here comes part one. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome, listeners. We've got a great show for you coming up. But before we get to that, we've got to thank our sponsor, MBI, the National Business Institute. Attorneys have trusted NBI with their CLE needs for over 35 years. Visit nbi-sems.com today and find out why. But don't forget to use that promo code LegalTalkNBI to get $100 off your next CLE course. All right. Well, welcome back, Simon. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Simon, you know, you've been on the air with us a couple of times. Uh, you've been on with one of our shows, ABA Journals, Modern Law Library, of course, talking about your your most recent authorship. And then uh, earlier you were on our Make No Law show, a show that, uh, you know, that I produce. It was an episode called Disparagement, Contempt and Disrepute. Uh, and so, but before we get into our conversation, I wanted to say thank you. You allowed us to use some separated tracks for that episode where we got to, uh, at some points, use the vocals and sometimes not use the vocals for some of your music and it was it was wonderful we got to play with that to tell that story of your battle with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. So I just wanted to thank you for your generosity before we got started today. Oh, well thank you. That was actually one of the more enjoyable profiles and interviews that I'd done. I just the laying, layering of the storytelling with music was I thought really really fun. And of course, uh, Ken, the the host, was fantastic. I mean, he he knows First Amendment law like nobody else. So it was, it was quite an honor. Oh well, thank you for saying that. I'll I'll pass that along to Ken. We call him the uh, First Amendment aficionado around here. So. <laughs> Well, Simon, you're a talented guy, you know, and obviously we came to know you through your battle with the Patent and Trademark Office, but uh, you know, you've made a career at teaching in civil rights and, and teaching anti-racism through your public speaking, you know, your performance in the band called The Slants and teaching at educational institutions, running your foundation, The Slants Foundation, and of course, uh, your book you know, that you recently authored, Slanted, How an Asian American Troublemaker Took on the Supreme Court. I love that title. So, but, uh, you know, during your career, you know, you've come under public scrutiny you've faced some harassment online, you know, this cancel culture. And so, you know, you and I recently connected on LinkedIn and you kind of shared some experiences uh, with me and I wanted to bring you online to talk about, I want to talk about that personal element, you know, how this impacts people in their real lives. And so you know, you've been doxxed and publicly threatened on several occasions throughout your career. Uh, in one particular instance, people were making videos asking for you to be fired. So Simon, if you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, some of those, some of those experiences over time, I just want to connect that with the audience. Sure. So a lot of those experiences kind of started coming about the same time that our case was getting a lot of uh, larger media attention. I think there, in, in the beginning, there were a number of white supremacists who hated the fact that we were a prominent Asian American band and really doing a lot of work around anti-racism. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but how much of those documents you file at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office are actually public? Well, in those documents, it actually had my home address. And so I would get all kinds of notes from people, mostly through Twitter, but sometimes other social media sites talking about how they wanted to do us harm because they didn't like what we were saying. And a number of occasions, I found garbage just strewn all throughout my lawn. I found my my car had gotten keyed a number of times when it was parked in the driveway. And, you know, it just got kind of really intense and really scary just because people were so threatened 
by an Asian American activist, by, by a band that was trying to claim its identity. That kind of kicked off a number of things, but I decided I wanted to continue sharing that message. And so as I, as I continued working around teaching courses on diversity, equity, and inclusion, it only ramped up, especially once I started teaching some of those courses for events at a local college, at a Portland Community College. Well, as I understand it, you know, in addition to, uh, you know, your property being destroyed and damaged and vandalized, you received some threats. And so, you know, can you share with us the nature of those threats? I mean, how se- serious were they? Were they, you know, life and death? Were they, you know, physical well-being? Were they threatening to ruin you? What was the nature of the threats? Um, it kind of ran the gamut. Most of them were fairly vague. I think the more, like, frightening ones were ones when someone had threatened to burn down my house, especially oh, wow. when I was in it. I've had a number of occasions where people threatened to show up at uh, my appearances, either when I was speaking or our band's live shows and, and post some kind of, you know, physical threat. You know, those things, of course, were a bit scary, but I would say the, the worst of any of them were actually when they threatened members of my family and, and saying like, hey, we're going to go after your parents or, or your sister or something like that. That was definitely really scary for me because they have nothing to do with me other than just being related to me. And I didn't feel like they ought to be dragged into this at all. Yeah, that's, that's terrifying. And I think especially, you know, because, you know, I guess as somebody that, you know, I get behind the microphone on occasion, you know, if something threatened to me, it's, it's bad enough, but if they decide to go after your family, you just feel awful. Let me ask you this, you know, obviously it scares you, but at any time that you want to quit doing what you were doing, because they were threatening you or your family? Were you ever tempted to just stop doing what you were doing? I mean, I I seriously considered some of those things of like thinking, how can I temper this? And over time, I just started trying to speak with those individuals. Oftentimes, if they had some kind of issue, especially if they're using some kind of anonymous social media site, I'd say, hey, if you have a problem with me, let's meet up. Let's, let's hop on the phone, you know, send me your phone number. I'll give you a call. And they almost never would do that. Or I would say, let's meet up in this public place and I'm happy to hear your grievances and, and see if we can work something out. I mean, most people didn't do that. And what's funny is like when I actually made the offer to connect, most of the time those threats would kind of disappear because they didn't want to be called out on it or because perhaps they realized that they were dealing with like an actual human being and, and they started feeling there was a certain realness to it that uh, went beyond just targeting some kind of Facebook page or a Twitter account. And so that helped mitigate a lot of those kinds of things. But every once in a while, if, it, if I felt really concerned, I would forward those threats or the messages I received to the local police. Though most of the time they just said they couldn't really do anything because they're, you know, there's no personal information and they they couldn't qualify it as like a true threat because they didn't know who who was sending it. There was no details about the information. It was just kind of like this broad, lingering, threatening language, but not enough information for them to actually go and do anything about. Well, I think you handled that very well. You know, you hit it straight on. And, and, and I, I definitely want to get into that personal aspect later because I think that's one of the things that drives this cancel culture, this prominence of it. But, uh, you know, they weren't able to cancel you, you know, Simon. They weren't able to, you know, stop you from doing what you were doing. You decided to carry on. But later on, people are making videos to have you fired at work. And so people disagree with people. It's not enough just that, you know, agree to disagree. Now they're going after your livelihood. So, you know, tell us about some of those videos. They were aimed directly at you, people trying to get you fired? You know, who are these people and what was the message behind trying to get you dismissed from your place of work? Well, there were a number of threads on a couple of white supremacist websites. Stormfront, which is one of the largest 
white supremacist groups out there started posting some of my information, whatever they could gather from public documents, or they found my phone number and a couple of websites that I think were related to booking the band. So they were trying to get their members to contact me and to kind of basically harass me to get me to, to stop doing whatever I was doing. In relation to the videos, what they would do is like sometimes people would show up at my events where I was speaking and then just begin video recording me and then edit those videos out of context to kind of construct a different kind of narrative. Oh, wow. And then post phone numbers like the, you know, when I was speaking at uh, Portland Community College where I was an adjunct instructor and for a while I was actually working for the school in, in their marketing department. But uh, when I was an instructor there, they would put the phone number for the president of the college and basically, you know, insinuate that they ought to call them and, and, and get me fired for the kind of work that I was doing, for the kind of messages that I was saying. So those were a lot of their tactics in, in terms of like how they approached trying to kind of get me to stop doing what I was doing. It wasn't enough to, to disagree with you and try to get you fired, but it, it sounded like what they were doing was sort of perverting, you know, uh, your messaging through some selective editing process there. Yeah. And I think that's pretty common in terms of the world we're li- living in today. When you look at, you know, some of the more prominent people kind of so-called being canceled, a lot of times you'll find their remarks selectively edited or certain quotes or things attributed to them, even if it's not giving the full context of their intentions or what they're trying to say. And that's just basically to try and bolster the case that, hey, this person really needs to be removed from society, from uh, they, they need, need to be deplatformed or they need to be stopped at all costs. And I think a lot of the people who have those concerns believe that the the ends justify the means. So like, hey, hey, if we can get this person to stop talking or if we can get the microphone away from them, it's going to be worth all of our efforts, even if we have to do some kind of nefarious kinds of things in order to do so. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating, you know, and it seems to be, you know, growing in prominence. And, uh, you know, that's my, my next question for you. So, you know, under the banner of cancel culture, you know, I consider uh, some of it to be, you know, when groups of people, they, they, they hire people to go after your sponsors. Like you get like a big grouping of people, call your sponsors and say, hey, I don't like the messaging on there. You know, we're, th- we're threatening to leave. We're not going to buy any of your products. And so your sponsors get scared and they think about uh, not funding your show. You know, and if without money, you can't do production work. You know, I've seen this in, in the workplace. You know, people don't like a particular comment or a political point of view. And so they go complain to HR to get a co-employee in trouble. You know, and I've seen this with threats and harassment like you got where people, they dox where you live. They dox maybe where you're going out to eat with your family. And, you know, people show up at a politician's house or show up where they're eating with their, uh, with their family and scare them. You know, angry mob comes up and gets their attention. You see this with the heckler's veto on college campuses. You know, people disagree with the speaker. They'll go shout the speaker down or they'll do as much vandalism or threats up front that the college administrators are worried. They're like, you know, I think we're gonna have to cancel this event because we can't guarantee safety. But, you know, we also do it on a, uh, you know, kind of like a, a personal level. And I see this a lot with young people and this, you know, breaks my heart. These these young kids, they grow up and they get social shame for whatever reason, whether they have a, a set of beliefs that are different than their peer group, or maybe they're overweight, or maybe 
their appearance is different, they get shamed and it it's hurtful and they haven't had that time to develop that thicker skin that we as adults get over time through encounters. They just get bombarded by all of this volume of negativity. And so, you know, Simon, you and I are pretty close in age. And, uh, you know, when I was going through high school, none of this existed, thank goodness, or at least it existed and I was unaware of it. But today it just seems to be so prominent. Why, why do you think that's the case? I think there's a couple of factors involved here. One of them is social media, and that's just kind of the nature of the the tools that we have. With social media, it's so much easier to kind of get in touch with people or to be in t- speaking about them, whether they whether they want to be spoken about or not. I think you know when we were in high school, if people talked behind our backs. It was just exactly that. It seldomly got around, and if it did, it was just gossip. But now there's a public and oftentimes permanent record of what is being said. I think that allows that information to spread more quickly. The other part of that, what what's happening today, I believe, is that people feel the stakes are higher than ever. And as a result, they feel like they have to take immediate action and sometimes drastic action in order to get whatever they they want, whether it's to get someone to stop speaking or to kind of shame them because we believe that uh, that's the most effective means of change. But the problem with that is that I believe that this generation and even older generations who are participating in this have forgotten that it's okay to disagree with people. You just don't be disagreeable in the process that, you know, if you permanently label someone and do it in a menacing kind of way, it doesn't actually give them any capacity to change. There's no grace involved. And you're just basically kind of making them a permanent target. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that's what actually changes hearts and minds. That doesn't actually change society when you just create enemies and create tribes or hives of where you only surround yourself with the people that you agree with. So unfortunately, the means of retrieving information these days is is kind of centered around social media and centered around Google. And Google actually caters search engine results to our own filter bubbles by supplying us with results that we're more likely to cl- click on. So if we tend to be more progressive, well, you're going to get more progressive news sources. If you tend to be more conservative, you're going to get more conservative sources. And it just kind of continues on and on and basically creating this kind of tunnel vision where people only see their version of the truth and they're not willing to actually experience or even ask about somebody else's personal experience. And that's why you see things being so divided as well as like so volatile. One thing I would add to that too, in terms of the volume. We hope you're enjoying our conversation with Simon so far. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when we return to talk about the importance of free speech, disagreeing constructively with one another, and how to survive attacks from cancel culture. Until then, have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 